Turn in your Bible, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. Book of Philippians in chapter 3. We have seen in our recent studies that God's purpose in saving us is to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you adjust the volume on that just a little bit, Carol? It must be a little too high. I sound like I'm kind of... Oh, you don't know which one to turn. Yeah, that's right. Let me do that. So. You can pretend. Okay, let me adjust that just a little bit down. So, all right, that's a little bit better. So, okay. Very good. For those of you who are watching by uh, on the live stream or the recording of the live stream, we are working on some of our sound issues, and uh, hopefully by next Sunday we will have some of that improved. So. Uh, but those of you who are here sitting in the auditorium, I know you never have any trouble hearing me, but, but the way it records, uh, sometimes it hasn't been the greatest. So anyway, uh, we should have that ironed out, Lord willing, next Sunday. But here in Philippians chapter 3, this is number 16 in our series, Working Our Way Through Philippians. And remember that we've seen in our recent studies that God's purpose in saving us is to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that wonderful passage there, Romans. Everybody knows Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Romans 8.29 says we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That is, our God-given destiny is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. That is His design for us. So every trial, every hardship, every challenge... Every blessing, every open door, every closed door, they are all designed by God to grow us in holiness and increase our our Christ-likeness. That's the essence of the Christian life. That's the process of pursuing Christ-likeness. That's what knowing the Lord is all about. We must become more and more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we said a couple of weeks ago, when we say, be like Jesus, it's not just a cute little cliche, it's not just a nice little saying, it is is a philosophy of life that is rooted in the teaching of Scripture, it should govern every decision, every response, every reaction, every choice, every word, every thought, every attitude, be like the Lord Jesus. And those verses that we uh, that we ha- are, are going to read here in just a moment remind us uh, that we are continuing on in that theme of being like Jesus. Let's look at it again, starting in verse 17, Philippians 3, verse 17, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Been working on this for a couple of weeks here now. Of course, we got snowed out last Sunday, so we weren't here, and and uh, so many electrical flickers, I couldn't record anything. But uh, anyway, so from two weeks ago, we started here in Philippians three seventeen. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ." whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the workings by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So these verses that we just read continue this theme of being like the Lord Jesus, being Christ-like. And Paul gets very practical in these verses, giving us these down-to-earth guidelines for how to go about being like Jesus. How do you pursue that goal? Well, I told you, I told you a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to give you several answers, four of them. We discussed three of them last week. We're going to do the fourth one, or two weeks ago, we're going to do the fourth one today. The first one, remember, was if we're going to be like Jesus, you have to know Jesus in a personal way. You have to know Him as your Savior. You have to know that you are forgiven. You have realized that you're a sinner. You have realized your need for forgiveness. You have come to Christ to receive that forgiveness. You, you have done what Paul described earlier in chapter 3. You have considered all of your personal goodness as worthless compared to Christ. And you want to be found in Him. Having the perfect righteousness of Jesus that's given to you by faith in him. Then you get to know him better because you are reading and studying his word. All of that is rather obvious. You must know Jesus in a personal way and be growing in that relationship if you're going to strive to be like him. That absolutely has to be. The, the, the second thing that Paul gives us is that we follow godly examples. What we all need is somebody who models the way to live, who shows us the climbing process, somebody who has walked the path of life and is following the Lord. How do we deal with the struggles of life? How do we deal with disappointment? How do we deal with trials and temptations? How do we deal with pride? How do I deal with my sin when I stumble? It's so helpful to our spiritual life to follow someone who is willing to talk about those things, to encourage us, to guide us, to listen to us, because we, we can read it in the Bible, and we should, but it's so helpful to have a real flesh and blood person to help lead us. We call them role models or mentors, and Paul says we need them. And he further says, that's what I want to be. That's why he says, join in following my example. Paul says, I'm not the perfect model. We know that immediately from all the things he's written. He says, I'm not the perfect model. That's Jesus Christ. But he said, I am somebody you can follow because I am pursuing Christ-likeness. I am living by the Word of God. And, and so he says, find people who are doing that. Find people who are following the Lord Jesus and get connected with them. Climb the mountain with them. That's, that's part of our purpose of church fellowship and small group Bible study gatherings and inviting people to your home and hanging out with godly people. Well, we need to, we need to initiate those kinds of things so we can climb the mountain together. Then the third thing we talked about as we kind of were winding up our thoughts last week was to avoid gospel enemies. Paul said there are many enemies of the cross, many enemies of the cross, and although they may pretend to be friends of the cross, you'll be able to spot them by, by what they say and by what they don't say, by what they leave out and by the way they live. They are either adding to salvation by grace through faith, saying that our works count toward our forgiveness, or else they are saying that, that, God's, that because of God's grace, you can live any way you want and it doesn't matter. 
They, they pervert the message of the cross. They worship their desires. They brag about things they should be ashamed of. And they are earthly minded, Paul said. So if we're pursuing Christ-likeness, we've got to do those things. We have to be, have to make, make certain that we know Christ as our Savior. We have to be following godly uh, examples, and we need to be avoiding gospel enemies. And then the fourth thought today that we're going to look at in verse 20 and 21 is to maintain a godly focus. Maintain a godly focus. You see, if it, if it is God's plan for us, and it is, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know Him as our Savior, and we are, we are finding godly friends, godly role models, godly mentors, godly people to fellowship with, and we're avoiding gospel enemies, we're, we're well on the path toward, toward becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ, but this last issue is so important as well, to maintain a godly focus. And Paul mentions three areas of focus for us in these two verses. The first area is identification. The first thing we want to focus on is who are we? What is our identification? And he says in verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. There is a contemporary writer, a Russian fellow actually, who referred to our society as what he calls a sensate culture. You say, what's he mean by that? Well, sensate is just kind of a, a shortened form of the word sensation. And he's meaning that our culture is more concerned about pleasant emotions than it is about productive efforts. Well, we are so much more into comfort than we are into accomplishment. That's one of the reasons why we see help wanted and now hiring signs all over everywhere. While it isn't true of everyone, of course, our, our sensate culture uh, has, has produced significant numbers of people who have no goals other than personal comfort and avoiding responsibility. And that has in, in some ways crept into our churches. Observers and research groups studying trends in different Bible preaching churches report a very alarming lack of, of commitment and, and, a, and a frightening inability to fill positions of ministry. Everyone is so wrapped up in their own lives and their own pursuits that the focus has become acquiring things and doing what makes us feel good rather than productive efforts for God's kingdom. Many people will say, I only work so I can make money to have fun. There's no higher goal for many people than pursuing leisure. And we are certainly, we are living in a sensate culture. And if we are going to produce Christ-likeness, then there has to be a, a commitment to that pursuit. It involves dying to self. It involves living for God. It involves a, a focus that is God-centered and Bible-based. And, and we are defining that focus, as I said a moment ago, with those three words, identification, expectation, and transformation. And we'll expand on those. Identification, expectation, and transformation. First of all, identification. Our citizenship is in heaven. We spoke of this back in chapter 1 when Paul mentions that as well. 
Remember that Philippi was more than a city that was ruled by Rome. Philippi was a Roman colony, a highly privileged status in the Roman Empire. Many of the people who lived there were undoubtedly Roman citizens, and the ones who weren't Roman citizens still enjoyed a special status that provided them with some rights that everyone in the empire would not have. Historians tell us that about 10% of the population of the Roman Empire were Roman citizens. The other 90% were not. And, and among the rights of a citizen well, were freedom from beatings without a trial, the right to be tried before the emperor if we wish to rather than a local court of law, the right to not be executed by crucifixion if I was, committed, if I was uh, convicted of a capital offense, and many, many other rights that Roman citizens had. Our point being that Roman citizenship was rare and very highly valued. It, it afforded you privileges that 90% of the people in the empire did not have. Roman citizenship placed you in an elite group. It gave you a sense of belonging and a sense of, of identity. It was, it was a somewhat exclusive club. You not only had special legal privileges, but you were expected to live up to your identity. You were to conduct yourself in a certain way because you were a citizen of Rome. You had civic responsibilities. People had expectations of you. And all of Paul's readers in the church of Philippi, as residents of a Roman colony, many of them probably citizens of Rome, totally understood that, so they would totally get this word picture. And Paul grabs a hold of this concept of citizenship, this sense of belonging and, and, and privilege and responsibility. And, and he uses that word to remind us how we should be living. He says, you are a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen in the kingdom of God. You are representing the gospel of Christ. You have eternal heavenly blessings and you have earthly responsibilities. You see, it's really easy for us to get our citizenship identity kind of, kind of all messed up. We, we see ourselves first as citizens of our country and our culture, and we're deeply influenced by that. And, and we tend to see ourselves as becoming citizens of heaven eventually when we die. Because our, our, our values and our perspectives are, are so deeply shaped by our present citizenship and our own countries and cultures that, we, we, uh, that what we see as, as sometime way off in the future, being in heaven, we, we tend to not think of our citizenship already being there. You know, we kind of expect and, and believe that as, as, as citizens of our country and our own local area, we should be strong and independent, and we should be comfortable financially, and we should own the latest new technologies, and we shouldn't suffer, and we should be protected physically and treated well by our government, and we should be respected by the rest of the world, and we should be free to make whatever choices we want to make for ourselves as long as we don't break any laws. And along the way, I'll try to be a decent Jesus follower. And one day I'll make heaven. But, but Paul says, no, that's, that, that's not our identity. Paul says we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And Paul was a Roman citizen. He doesn't say I'm a Roman citizen now and one day I'll be a citizen of heaven. Because citizenship is not just residency. It's not just living there. It, it, it is belonging. It is being identified with. 
Paul says, we are citizens of heaven first. And we are temporary residents of an earthly political entity second. I was born in the United States of America. I'm an American citizen. But, but my first responsibility, my first citizenship is to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are followers of Jesus first. And we have an earthly ethnic identity second. Our number one identity is that of our citizenship being in heaven. That's who God called us to be. That is a focus that we have to maintain. If we're going to maintain a godly focus, the first thing we have to realize is where we're identified. What is our number one identity? Our number one identity is that we, is that we, that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and our citizenship is in heaven. Our other identities, our other connections of citizenship, whether the United States or Canada or wherever it is in the world, that comes, that should be secondary to our citizenship being in heaven. As Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. The next word is expectation. Identification and then expectation. He says, from which, meaning from heaven, also we eagerly wait for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's telling us is that the Lord Jesus is in heaven and he's coming back. You remember John 14, Jesus says, I'm going away and if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. So Jesus said, I'm going away in my father's house. There are many dwelling places. That's what the word mansion means. Many rooms, many sections of the house for you to live in. He said, I'm I'm going to prepare them for you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you and I'm going to take you to be there with me. So, Paul says, we are waiting for Christ. Interestingly, see, we're not waiting for an event. We're waiting for a person. That's the expectation, Paul says. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 3, John says that if we have this hope in us, then we purify ourselves, this hope of the coming of Christ. We are to be looking for Christ, and John says that is a, that is a tremendous spiritual motivation. It also reminds us of our spiritual accountability to Christ when He comes. And it also provides us with wonderful spiritual security. I want to be serving faithfully when he comes. I hope you want to be serving faithfully when Jesus comes. We know that according to the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we will give an account of our lives, not our sin, but our lives when Christ comes at the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. We are also, we are also secure in his forgiveness and we are secure in his promises to come back and to get us and to take us where he will be forever and ever. Heaven, heaven is our place. That's where our Savior is. That's the place from which we come. So we eagerly wait. We're waiting for Him. And in our eagerness to wait, we are motivated to be like Him. We have a sense of accountability. We have a sense of security. Because we know He's coming. Because we know He keeps His promises. So we eagerly wait, living with a sense of expectation. That is our focus, our returning Savior. So this maintaining a godly focus involves identification, knowing our citizenship's in heaven. It involves 
uh, expectation, looking for our returning Savior, which we know will give us this sense of, of accountability as well as security. And then the third word is transformation. The Apostle Paul wrote extensively about this, and he referenced it many, many places in his letters, that there is coming a day when all we who know Christ will receive from Him a brand new body which we will inhabit for all of eternity. It will be a body like the resurrection body of Jesus. It It will be recognizable. When I get to heaven, I'll still recognize you, you'll still recognize me. We're going we're gonna to look at least uh, similar enough to what we look now. People always have speculated and uh, wondered about, yeah, but what, what age will my glorified body be? I look a little different now than I did 40 years ago. My wife's nodding her head, probably going, yeah. <laughs> she doesn't. She looks the same as she looked 40 years ago, but I definitely do not. People say, so So what, what age is our body going to be? Well, the people speculate, well, you know, uh, the glorified body of Jesus, he was around 33 or so. Maybe we're all going to be look like we looked in our early 30s. I don't know. Actually, it doesn't really matter. I don't really care. You know, it's going to be a resurrection body and we're going to recognize each other. Maybe I'll still be bald in heaven. I don't know. Maybe not. But when I'm in heaven, I, I won't care any more than I don't really care now. It just kind of is what it is. But, but if you are there, you'll recognize me. And, and I will never get sick. I will never grow old. I will never have sore muscles and stiff joints. Even better than that, I will not have struggles with my sinful nature. I will be perfected in Christ. All the flaws and failings and weaknesses and hang-ups of my sinful flesh will all be gone. My lowly body, as Paul says about it here, my lowly body will become just like his glorious body. And it will be wonderful. Transformation. Can Jesus really do that? No, of course he can. He has all power. He has all authority. He has all ability. He he is the creator and sovereign ruler of the universe, meaning he can subdue all things. That's what Paul's talking about. According to the workings or the powers by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Jesus Christ has all sovereign power, all authority, all ability, and he can do just whatever he pleases to do. And he has promised us that when he returns, he's going to give us a glorious body just like his. So if we're going to pursue being like Jesus, what is the focus that you and I need to maintain? Identification. We are citizens of heaven. That's our number one identity. Expectation. Eagerly looking for the return of Christ. Transformation. One day we will be perfectly like Him. Rejoice then and live for the Lord Jesus Christ today. I want to close by sharing with you a story of a, of a godly man who lived in the 4th century in Asia Minor. He's been honored through the years as a precious saint of God. He's called in church history records, Phocos the Gardener. He had a little cottage outside the city gate of his town in which he grew a garden. His story was recorded by an ancient bishop and has survived down through the centuries. Travelers used to pass by his door almost all hours of the day and night as they went in and out of the city gate. To express the love of Christ, he would stop as many of them as were possible. 
Were they weary, he would ask them, let them rest themselves sitting in his well-tended garden. Were they in need of a friendly word, he would speak to them in the Savior's name. He would feed them if they were hungry. But then quite suddenly one day, life changed for Phokos. Orders went out from the Roman emperor Diocletian that all the Christians should be put to death. He ruled them as enemies of the empire. Many, many thousands and thousands and thousands of believers died under the persecution under Diocletian throughout the Roman Empire. And when the persecutors entered Phocas's town, they were under orders to find a man by the name of Phocas and kill him. Everyone knew he was a leader. They knew who he was. Uh, he was a well-known man among the, Christian, uh, among the Christian community. They were to find Phocas and kill him. Well, these men were coming into Phocas' city one hot afternoon, and they passed by in front of the old man's cottage in his garden, right by the gate of the city. In his innocence, or he didn't know what they were there for, he treated them as though they were his warmest friends, and he begged them to pause a while, rest themselves, they consented. He was so warm and gracious in his hospitality uh, that when their host invited him to just stay the night and go their way, refreshed the next morning, they agreed to do so. As they were visiting in the evening, Phocas said to them, So, gentlemen, what is your business in our fair city? They told him they'd answer his question if he would regard it as a secret. It was obvious to them now he knew he seemed to be a man who could be trusted. Who were they? Well, they said, We are soldiers of Rome. We are searching for a certain man named Phocas who was a Christian. And please, he said, if our kind host knows him, would he be so kind as to help them identify him? We don't know what he looks like. We just need to find him and execute him. After all, he said, he, he's a dangerous follower of this Jesus that the Christians talk about. And the emperor says he must be executed immediately. Phocas said, you know, I, I know him very well. And by the way, he's very nearby. But let's, let's attend to it in the morning. His guest retired for the evening. Phocas sat there thinking, should I escape? That would be easy. He only had to leave under the cover of night. By daybreak, he'd be probably 15, 20 miles away. He knew fellow Christians who would give him hospitality by hiding him. And when the persecution had passed, maybe he could reappear and once again cultivate his little garden. But that decision to flee into safety or stay to, to death was apparently made without Phocas really struggling or delaying. We can only imagine what he was thinking. Out in his garden, Phocas went and he began to dig all through the middle of the night. Was there any earthly thing he loved better than this little plot of ground? The odor of the soil, the feel of the soil, the miracle of the growth of the plants. What were his thoughts as he went on digging? No one knows. Well, there was still time to run away, but the Savior didn't run. He didn't run from Gethsemane, and he didn't run from Calvary. Perhaps he thought of his fellow Christians, to whom he might go for rest. Maybe my going to their house would endanger them. And for these executioners that were now soundly sleeping under his roof, they were, after all, only men carrying out orders. And if they failed to find their man, maybe their own lives would be taken. And then they would die in their sins. Deeper and deeper, Phocas dug. Before dawn, he was done. And there it was, his own grave. Morning came, with it the waking of the executioners. 
He stood before them and he said, I am Phokas, the man you seek. We have it on the word of the Christian bishop who recorded the story that the men stood motionless in astonishment. They, they, they couldn't believe it. When they did believe it, they were very reluctant to perform an execution on a man who had shown them nothing but mercy. But he reminded them, it is your duty to kill me. And he said, I am not afraid to die. I am not bitter at you. He said, death does not terrify me. My heart is filled with the hope of heaven. And he said, I bear nothing before you but the love of Christ. He knelt next to the grave he had dug. The sword did its work and beheaded Phokas. And they laid the body of this loyal, godly servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in the middle of the garden that he loved so dearly. When we read that story, we think, how, how could Phokas do that? How, how could he do that? Well, the reason he could do that, because he had maintained a godly focus. He knew who he was, and he knew whose he was, and he knew where he was going. He knew his identity in Christ. He was eagerly looking forward to seeing him and being transformed into the image of his Savior. So it was very easy for him to act like Jesus. May God help us to maintain our focus. Let's pray. Lord, we are so wrapped up so many weeks in all the things of this world that we often forget who we are in Christ and who we actually belong to. Lord, may we remember that our citizenship is in heaven and that we are to be eagerly looking forward to the day when we see you, rejoicing in the transformation of this lowly body into the body like the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we keep our focus on you, on what we should be doing and how we should be living. And Lord, may we every week pursue a closer walk with our Savior. We pray in his powerful name. Amen. We're going to sing as Carol comes today. We're going to sing uh, this wonderful little song that we have uh, been working on for the last number of weeks off and on. Come you sinners.
victory. Our hearts are restless till we find our rest in you. Our lives are hopeless till we find our hope in you. Jesus, you are my life. Jesus, I prayer please Tom today